Our text for this morning is found in Galatians chapter 1, starting in verse 11. I was originally going to go through verse 24, but we're just going to go through verse 17 this morning. We'll, we'll push verse 18 through 24 into next week's text. Galatians chapter 1, verse 11, Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, writes this. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Would you pray with me? Father, sanctify us in the truth this morning. Your word is truth. Illuminate the scriptures this morning for our mi- in our minds. Lead us into the truth so that we may glorify Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Well, in our text this morning, you can probably see as we begin... To read, Paul is talking about his conversion, the experience that he had on the road to Damascus. So before we get into this text, I want to remind you of what happened to Paul when he experienced and met the risen Christ. Let's hear the story from Paul's own lips. Now, Paul, this this story is told three times in the book of Acts, once in Acts chapter 9, once in Acts chapter 22 and once in Acts chapter 26, and you can read through those, through those and, and figure out uh, the different things that are emphasized in those. But I want to take you to Acts chapter 22. This is Paul telling his own story. So let's remind ourselves of what happened to Paul so that we can better under, understand our text this morning. So in Acts chapter 22, Paul is giving his defense. He's He's been arraigned on some charges, and so he's In Jerusalem, the people have gathered to charge him with various crimes, and he makes his defense, and he tells his testimony, and here's what he says, starting in verse 6 of chapter 22, the book of Acts. He says, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me, Saul, that's his other name, Saul. Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise, 
And go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. In one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. So that was Paul's experience on the road to Damascus. We're going to hear him describe that again in in a lot less detail here, and it's going to be part of his argument. But before we go to our text, let's remember a little bit the setting of the letter of Galatians. It's been a while since we've been in Galatians. Now, Paul, after his conversion, had gone on various missionary journeys, and on one of those missionary journeys, he had planted probably about four churches in the region of Galatia, which is in modern-day Turkey. Within months of Paul's leaving those churches, he got news that false teachers had come into the churches and had begun to persuade those churches of a false gospel, a gospel different than the one that Paul had preached to them. Now, these Galatian churches were were Gentile churches, non-Jewish churches, And yet these false teachers who had come in were Jews. They were teaching the Galatians in order to be truly right with God. Sure, believe in Jesus, of course, but also you need to be circumcised and you need to submit yourself to the Mosaic law, the Jewish traditions. In other words, believe in Christ for salvation, but also you must live like a Jew for salvation. This is not the gospel that the Apostle Paul had preached to the Galatian churches. It is what he called in in our text last time we were together, a different gospel, another gospel, a distorted gospel. It is in fact a gospel so false, false, Paul says, that believing it condemns someone to hell because it is not the true gospel. And so that's why the tone of Galatians is so different from the other letters, the New Testament. But the tone in this letter is is alarmed. It's concerned. Paul is is worried to the point of, of righteous anger at these false teachers. Again, because the Galatians are in the process of deserting Christ and the true gospel. So the main issue in Galatians is this issue over the true gospel. It is a a theological issue, but it is an issue of life and death. It is the very issue of salvation. How is one right before God? Who is Jesus and what did he accomplish? How does someone become a part of the community of faith, those who are saved? Is it by faith alone or is it by faith and works of the law? Is it by trusting Christ or is it by trusting Christ and obeying the commandments of the Mosaic law? Now, that's the discussion that starts towards the end of chapter 2. But before Paul gets into the theological content of his argument, 
he needs to defend himself a little bit because his opponents weren't just making a theological argument. They were also attacking Paul's credentials. They were trying to undermine Paul's message by undermining the Galatians' trust in who Paul actually was. And so they were accusing Paul. What were they accusing of him? What were they accusing him? What were they claiming about him? They were claiming that he had learned everything he knew about Christianity from the other apostles, the true apostles, the original apostles. In other words, they were essentially telling the Galatians, yeah, Paul's an apostle, but he's a second-rate apostle, and he's got a lot of issues in his doctrine. We're the true apostles from the church, the true church in Jerusalem, and they're teaching what we teach. That's what they were claiming. And on top of that, they were claiming that the content of his message, that he had changed the content of his message to fit in with the Gentile culture. So he had taken all of the Jewish parts out of the gospel so as not to offend the Gentiles. He was a people pleaser. He had tried to make the gospel more palatable to the Gentiles. That's what these teachers were claiming. So before he refutes their theology, and he will, before he makes his biblical argument for justification by faith and not works, he has to defend his reputation as a true apostle commissioned by Christ himself and as one independently commissioned apart from the Jerusalem church, although he will claim he's teaching the exact same message. And that's what this week's text focuses on. Paul's going to show us that he was set apart by God, converted by God, and commissioned to preach the gospel by God himself. Therefore, this is his line of argument, his teaching, his gospel is not his, but is God's. It's Christ's gospel and Christ's teaching. So to oppose Paul, he's saying by implication, is to oppose Christ. Look at verse 11 and 12. We see this. We can, this is kind of the main thesis, and then everything that comes after this in the next couple paragraphs is kind of proving his point here. So here's his main thesis in verse 11 and 12. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now think about this in context. In verses 6 through 10, Paul had essentially said, this this new teaching that you have accepted from these false teachers is a different gospel, a false gospel. Mine is a true gospel. Now, look at his argumentation. Why is his the true gospel? How do they know? Paul says, because mine came from Christ himself. I didn't learn it from someone else. I wasn't taught it by anyone else. I met Jesus, and he gave me the teaching that I gave to you. You see his point. Now, it's a little hard to see in English, but, but there's a serious tone to these couple of sentences here. It matches the tone of 6 through 10 that we saw earlier. This, this phrase, for I would have you know, is a, is, a, is a very serious phrase. It's a phrase that would signal to the hearer or reader that what comes next is very important. It's, it's like saying, okay, now, now listen closely to what I'm about to say. Or it's like, remember President Obama used to say, let me be clear, Okay. Or President Bush, what would he say? Read my lips, okay? Very similar. It's that type of phrase that kind of cues you in, okay, what he's about to say is very important. The only difference is when Paul does it, he's telling the truth, okay? Big difference, but similar type of phrase. 
No new taxes. You're right, right, sure, uh uh-huh. Never believed that phrase. Anyway, completely beside the point. The point is, Paul had not learned his gospel from anyone. He did not receive it from a human. Rather, he received the gospel through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, let's talk about that phrase, a revelation of Jesus Christ. That's how Paul received the gospel, and each word is significant here. This word revelation uh, is a really cool word. It's, it's actually the word we get the, the word apocalypse from. That's why in some old Bibles, you'll see the book of Revelation is called the Apocalypse of John. That's why. It's, it's essentially the same word. And what it means is something that was hidden but is now revealed. Something that God had kept secret but now revealed. And Jesus Christ. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ. Christ is Messiah. It means Messiah. It means anointed king. The one whom the Old Testament was about and prophesied was to come. We saw that last week in Genesis 22. So what is a revelation of Jesus Christ? It's Paul's conversion. You see, before Paul became a Christian, he knew about Jesus. He was very familiar with the teachings of Jesus and he hated them. He hated them. He was persecuting the church, we'll talk about in a couple minutes. He knew all about Christianity. He hated it. He hated that they claimed Jesus was the Messiah. He knew that they claimed Jesus was the Messiah, and he said, no, and in fact, I hate that claim so much, I want you dead. He rejected it. So a revelation of Jesus Christ isn't any new information that he wasn't aware of. On the Damascus Road, God revealed Jesus as Messiah to Paul. And in that revelation of Jesus Christ is the gospel. That is the gospel, and in maybe the shortest form you can make it, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Jesus himself is the one who revealed himself to Paul and is himself the revelation that was hidden from Paul but now revealed. When Paul saw and heard Jesus on the road to Damascus, he saw for the first time and heard for the first time with faith the true gospel. And he believed it. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed in Jesus and the entire foundation that he had built his whole life on and his career on in Judaism crumbled. The true gospel, the true good news, the revelation is Jesus Christ. That is the gospel, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he was crucified, that he was dead He was buried. He descended to the dead. And on the third day, he was raised to life. His resurrection vindicated all of the claims he made in his life. That he is one with the Father. And that now he has ascended to the right hand of God the Father. He's ruling and reigning forever as one truly man and truly God, the one mediator between God and man. And yet, though he reigns, he is still vitally connected in his church, his body. 
He is so vitally connected to us, brothers and sisters, that Paul was persecuting the church of Christ, and Christ could appear to him and say, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You can see where Paul's doctrine of the church comes from in that experience. And because Jesus is the Messiah, we know he will come again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead, to usher in the new heavens and the new earth where we, his people, will rule and reign with him for all eternity, where he will be our God and we will be his people. This is what Paul came to know when Christ was revealed to him, and not just to know, but to believe. This is one of the reasons why we say the Apostles' Creed each week. You may have noticed that all of that is contained in the Creed. It is the center of the Christian faith, Because it is centered on Christ Jesus. And he is the center and the foundation of our faith and of the gospel. And in the meantime, God is gathering his people. So Christ has ascended. He's ruling and reigning. He will return. But in the meantime, in the meantime, he's gathering his people through the proclamation of the gospel. Those whom he purchased with the blood of his own son. How is he gathering them? Like I just said, by the proclamation of the gospel to all people. And what is the basis of acceptance into this people of God? Faith. Not works, not circumcision. It's the gospel that Paul came to believe on the Damascus Road. It's the gospel that he received, not from a man, but from Christ himself. This is not man's gospel, Paul says, but it is the gospel of of God because it is the gospel of Christ Jesus. The gospel is Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah. The gospel is not that God has blessed my life. Let me tell you how he can bless yours and make your life better. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's that's not the gospel. The gospel is not that if you just trust God, he'll clean your life up. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not that if you just believe in Jesus, he'll he'll heal all your ailments and fix all your problems. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not a call to look within yourself to find hope. But instead, it's the exact opposite, to look outside of yourself, look towards Christ for hope of salvation. Because the gospel at its most fundamental level, is Jesus. It is Jesus, him crucified for our sins and resurrected, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, in accordance with the scriptures. The gospel is about Jesus. It is the revelation of Christ Jesus that was hidden in ages past and has now been revealed to us. It is a message to be received and believed. Jesus, as he himself said, is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. This is why a rejection of the gospel or believing a different gospel or a perverted gospel or a false gospel is is a life and death matter. To believe on another gospel is to believe on a gospel created by men. 
There is only one gospel that has been passed down from Jesus Christ, and it's found here. Yet, there are many gospels parading around our lands on the internet and many things. There is only one gospel of Jesus Christ. To hear the true gospel and to reject it is to reject Jesus Christ himself. Why? Because the gospel is about Jesus. To hear the gospel and to reject it is to call God a liar. This is what John writes in 1 John. He writes this, Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. There's the gospel. Whoever has the Son has life. To have Jesus is to have life. So to say Jesus is not the Messiah, as John says, is to reject God's own testimony about his own Son. That's why it's condemning. Or to take the gospel that has been passed down and to pervert it is, again, another way of calling God a liar because the gospel is about Jesus. It's why Galatians has such a serious tone. This is life and death. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus as the Christ, and salvation comes by faith in him as he is revealed in the scriptures. That is the gospel that Paul received from God, and it's the gospel that he proclaimed until his head was cut off by a Roman sword. And it's the gospel that has been handed down to us in the scriptures by the testimony of a thousand generations of believers. Now remember, Paul here is trying to prove two things. He's trying to prove, number one, that his gospel is from God. We've seen that. And he's trying to prove that his ministry, his gospel, is independent from the Jerusalem church. That's, kind of, that's what we'll see this week. And yet, that his gospel and his message is the same as the Jerusalem church. So it's, it's independent on one hand. He didn't receive it from them. He received it from Christ. And yet, at the same time, it's the same message that they're preaching. We'll see that it's the same message next week. But for the rest of our text, he's going to make an argument that his his gospel is, is independent. He didn't learn it from anyone. He's going to kind of give us his, his reasoning. Let me give you some reasoning he's going to show them. He's going to give us two proofs. Proof number one is the radical nature of Paul's conversion. The radical nature of Paul's conversion. That's what he's going to give us starting in verse 13. Now, what makes Paul's conversion so radical? Well, number one, verse 13, he was a persecutor of the church. In other words, he's doesn't stand anything to gain by becoming a Christian, and actually he stands to lose everything. So his point is, why would I convert unless I literally met Christ on the road? Look what he says. For you have heard, you guys know of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. (laughs) Every Christian had heard about Paul or Saul as they would have known him. Every Christian knew Paul's name. He was the baddest of the bad. He was an enemy of the church, their, hot, their, their foremost opponent. 
He hated the church so much that, look at the language, he persecuted the church of God violently. All of his effort, all of his thought and strength were given to completely and utterly destroy the church. He wanted Christians wiped off the face of the planet. The language used here is the same language they would use back in, back in that time to describe the, the burning of a city and burning it to the ground. That's what he wanted of the church. He wanted it gone. He was not even satisfied to just kick all the Christians out of Jerusalem. That's why he was going to Damascus. So it's not just that he was in Jerusalem and saying, okay, well, I just don't want any Christians around me. He was seeking permission from those above him to go to other cities to find all the Christians there and bring them back to trial. He sought them out. So that's number one. It makes his conversion radical. He was a persecutor. Number two, not just that. He wasn't just any persecutor. He was like an all-star Jew. This was his life. This was his career. Look what he says. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Paul was a Jewish extremist. Sounds strange to our ears, but that was a thing back then. He was extremely zealous, extremely passionate. His entire life was consumed with learning, teaching, propagating the traditions of his fathers. Now, that's an interesting phrase he uses, very intentionally, I think. Note what he doesn't say, that he was extremely zealous for the glory of God. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, I was extremely zealous for the scriptures and what they said. He says, in a dig at his former self and in a dig at these false teachers, he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers. You see, Paul was a Pharisee. And we know from the Gospels that the Pharisees, based upon Jesus' read of them, only pretended to love the Scriptures. What they really loved were the traditions of their fathers, their man-made traditions. What they loved was acclaim and honor from people. This is why Jesus called them hypocrites. Because they said out of their mouth that they wanted the glory of God, but they did not live for the glory of God. They lived for the glory of men. He said of the Pharisees that they placed their man-made scriptures over and above the very words of God, that they actually used their traditions that were created by men to make void the word of God. And again, I believe what Paul is doing here is kind of giving a, a subtle implication that this is what these false teachers are doing. That was his former life. Before his conversion, Paul was a very, very religious man. But his passion was Man-made religion, man-made traditions. Now, he didn't know that at the time, but his passion was not the glory of God, not the scriptures. He honored God with his lips, but his heart was far from God. He was pursuing his righteousness through the law rather than through God's mercy. He probably would have been the Pharisee like we hear in Jesus' parable who says, thank God that I'm not like that sinner over there. That was Paul. Paul was advancing in Judaism. His life was good. He was successful. He was educated. 
and he was advancing beyond everyone else his own age. He had no motivation to convert to Christianity. Converting to Christianity would be to throw everything he had worked for his entire life into the trash. Paul's plan was to continue to gain fame and fortune by advancing in Judaism and by jailing and killing Christians. But God had a different plan. A plan not for Paul's glory, but for Christ's glory. A wonderful plan for Paul's life that included an immeasurable amount of suffering and an infinite amount of joy. And that brings us to his second proof, and that's his apostolic calling. Look at verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Now, remember what Paul's doing here, because we're going to separate it out a, bit, a little bit. Paul is, is proving to the Galatians that he did not learn his gospel from a human. He didn't learn it from anybody. He received it from Christ. He didn't learn it from the people in Jerusalem. He didn't learn it from the other apostles. Now, again, that sounds a bit strange, and we're like, okay, uh, but that was the accusation. He's a second-rate apostle and an unfaithful one at that. Paul is absolutely clear here as far as the timeline. After I was converted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, I didn't consult with anyone. I didn't make any visits to Jerusalem. In fact, he'll tell us in next week's text, I didn't go to Jerusalem until three years after that. I didn't even meet the apostles until three years after I was converted. It's, it's essentially, it's Paul's alibi, and it's airtight. If I had learned my gospel from them, how is that possible? I didn't even meet them for three years, and I was already doing ministry, which is probably what he did in Arabia. We don't know, but it's most likely he went to Arabia and was preaching the gospel. We know that when he came back to Damascus, he was doing ministry, because that's when he escapes the city and is let down through the wall in a basket. But let's pause and look back. That, that's Paul's point here. But let's pause and look back at this language that Paul uses describing his conversion and calling. Why? Because although the circumstances of Paul's conversion are unique and one of a kind, and although his point in this text is that he didn't learn his gospel from anyone, we can learn a lot about the theology of conversion from his words here. His conversion, brothers and sisters, was no more miraculous than yours and mine. So let us marvel in the truths of God's grace together. I want to look at three things that we find here in these statements about his conversion. We're going to see these three things. That God sovereignly set Paul apart before he was born. That God called Paul by grace, by revealing his son to him. And that God gave Paul a mission. Let's look at the first one, verse 15. God sovereignly set Paul apart before he was born. He says, but when he, that's God, who had set me apart before I was born. Now think about this for a second. Paul had only been to, converted to Christ maybe sometime in his 30s or 40s. So for the majority of his life, the majority of his life most likely had been opposing and persecuting Christians. Yet this was all part of God's sovereign plan. 
God had chosen to save Paul, had set him apart before his birth. God would use Paul to preach, to plant churches, to write a large majority, or at least a lot of the New Testament. God knew all this before Paul was born, before Paul even existed, before Paul was even conceived. God had chosen to work through Paul in this way. This is the glory of God's sovereignty. Even before Paul existed, God knew how he would use Paul. He had chosen him. He had set him apart for this mission. Isaiah 46, 9 through 10 says this, I am God and there is none like me. What makes God unique? Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. That was worked out in Paul's life. It's the majesty of God's sovereign decree. He has decreed, as Isaiah says, all things that will come to pass from ancient times, things not yet done. And yet his decree is worked out in real time. Paul was set apart before he was born, but he was not called until he was older. Now, is this unique to Paul, being set apart before one is born? Absolutely not, brothers and sisters. If your faith is in Christ Jesus this morning, it is because God, like Paul, chose you in Christ and set you apart before you were born. Ephesians 1 says this, Paul writes, even as he, God, chose us in him, When? Before the foundation of the world. So not just before we were born, before the world was even created, God chose us in him that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And here's Isaiah language, according to the purpose of his will. Why? Because it's God's will. Before the foundation of the world, you were set apart if your faith is in Christ. Romans 8 gives the same testimony. For those whom he foreknew, now this does not mean this verb, it's a personal verb. It doesn't mean just looking down the time and and being able to tell the future. It's a personal knowledge. Well, how does God have personal knowledge of things that are in the future? Because of what Isaiah said. He's declared all things from eternity past. How can he know Paul before he is even conceived? Because he knows all things. Why? Because he has decreed all things. For those whom he foreknew, the ones whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Jesus wants a big family. And those... Who's those? The ones he foreknew, the ones who are going to be Jesus' brothers and sisters, those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What glorious truth this is. Brothers and sisters, we were set apart and foreknown by the eternal, almighty God of the universe to be adopted in his Son, Jesus Christ, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. Why? It's the will of God. To the praise of his glorious grace, Ephesians says. This is what God wants. 
Why do you have faith in Christ? Why were you saved? Not because you chose and loved him, but rather he loved you and chose you. You have salvation. I have salvation because it was the will of God. There is not a more humbling truth in the universe and not a more comforting truth in the universe. Brothers and sisters, God's will never changes. Oh, the depth and the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. So God set Paul apart. He set us apart before we were born. Number two, God called him by his grace. He says, and who called me by his grace? This is, this is where we see God's eternal decree worked out in real time. God had set Paul apart in eternity past, but God had decreed to call Paul by his grace at a specific time and a specific place that day on the road to Damascus. And the same, again, is true for us. Though God had chose you before the foundation of the world, brothers and sisters, in eternity past, he called you at a specific time and place through the proclamation of the gospel. Now, maybe you can't pinpoint the exact day or hour. That's okay. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and he has not called you yet. I pray that he does. But to be called by God by his grace, to be called by his grace, is just another way of saying, he saved me. It's when God saved Paul. God's calling to his people is effectual. And when God calls by his grace, the sinner is saved. God didn't come to Paul and say, Paul, Paul, would you please believe in me? It would really be a great help to me. No. He came to Paul And he said, go into the city, and I'm going to show you the things that I have appointed for you to do. And Paul said, okay. (laughs) God's calling is effectual. It's just like creation. When he speaks, things happen. When God calls a sinner, he believes. God's words create. We saw this in Romans 8.30. I want to read it to you again. We saw election and calling both linked. Again, this passage is so glorious, it's called the golden chain of redemption because no part of this is is breakable. For those whom he foreknew, there's that setting apart before he was born. He predestined, and then later, and those whom he predestined, he also called. There's God's decree working out in time. And those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he glorified. Paul writes in the beginning of Romans, to all those in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, called to be holy ones. To be a Christian is to be one that is called. That's how you become a Christian. Those who are loved by God are those who are called to be saints, holy ones. How does this happen? Paul's was unique. Jesus appeared to him and literally knocked him off his high horse. There are exceptions like Paul's, but how does one normally hear the call of God? Through the proclamation of the gospel. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing. And hearing through the word of Christ. Do you see the connection? Faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? The word of Christ Jesus. God works through his word. And his word is effectual because his spirit works through it. 
2 Corinthians 4 makes this connection. The same God who said, let light shine out of darkness, referring to creation, has shown in our hearts the knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of God works through the Word to bring the children of God to faith in Christ. This is why we preach and proclaim the gospel with boldness and with confidence. Not in ourselves, please. You know how hard it is to prepare a sermon? The whole time you're just like, this is stupid, I'm stupid, this doesn't make any sense. My confidence isn't in myself. My confidence isn't in Pastor Rudolph's ability or in Josh's ability. Be the worst. My confidence is in God, knowing that he works through his word. And he works, he has chosen the foolish things of the world, here I am, to show the wisdom of God. That's why we can preach, that's why we can proclaim the gospel with boldness and confidence, because of God's power. So again, I say to you, do you have faith that Christ Jesus is the risen Lord, the Messiah? This faith was created in you by the calling of God. He called you to himself because he had foreknown you before the foundation of the world. Why did he call you? And why did he choose to call you when he called you? Because it's his plan. It's his will. And he justified you and he will glorify you. Why did God call you? Why did God call you? Have you ever thought about this? Why did he call you? Why did God save you? Why did God show his grace and mercy to you? What, was it because of anything worthy in you? No. No. At the time of your calling, Romans 5.10, you were an enemy of God, just like Paul. Was it because you were seeking after God? No. Romans 3.11, no one seeks after God. No one understands. And if you feel like you were seeking after God, that was actually God drawing you in. Was it because you exhibited some type of spiritual life and vitality? No. Ephesians 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Before God called you, you were a spiritual corpse. Was it because you were more righteous than others, filled with good deeds? No. No. God tells us in his word that all of our good deeds outside of Christ, all of our good deeds are like menstrual rags before him. He tells us that everything not done in faith is sin. It was not because of your righteous deeds. And Paul makes an argument in Philippians, which is hilarious. He says, if you think it's because of your deeds, I had more than you. And guess what? It wasn't because of my deeds. Was it because you were pleasing to God? No. Romans 8, 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So brothers and sisters, why did God call us? Purely out of his grace. Christ died for us while we were his enemies. Christ purchased us with his blood, though we were unworthy. And though we were unrighteous, dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ on the cross took our unrighteousness. He bore it in his body on the tree. And when he called us and when you believed in him on faith, he gave you his righteousness. Ephesians 2, he made us alive 
You were not alive outside of Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved. Paul repeats it, lest you don't get it. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. By his grace, he took what was unworthy and made it worthy. By his grace, he sought after a people who did not seek after him and in fact were running as fast as they could the other direction. By grace, he made the unrighteous righteous. And by his grace... Though we were unpleasing because of our sin, he was pleased to reveal his son to us that we might become his people. That Christ Jesus would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God chose us in him before the foundation of the world and when the time was right, he called you by his grace and he was pleased to reveal his son to us. Oh, the depth and riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. Number three, God gave Paul a mission. He says, in order, why did God save Paul? One reason, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. God saved Paul so that God could use Paul for a specific mission, to preach to the Gentiles. Paul was not the only one who would do this, but this was his unique and special mission. The apostle entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. Now, you and I are not apostles, and if you meet someone who claims to be one, no, I would be very, very suspicious, okay? Especially if they're on TV. Now, some, some Christians use that word differently, so just be very careful. But has God, this is the question, this is Paul's apostolic calling, but has God saved us and called us for a mission? Has God given us a mission? Absolutely, brothers and sisters. Just as God had created Paul for a specific mission, God chose us, created us, and saved us to accomplish good works which he has prepared for us. Ephesians 2.10, we just read the earlier part, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God had prepared the good works that he's calling you to do before you were even saved. He's saving you so that you can fulfill them for the glory of Christ and by his power. We are short on time, or I could show you many more passages like this. Our good works, what are they? All of the things that we do for the glory of God, all of the ways in which we love our neighbors, and especially the ways in which we participate in the proclamation and spread of the gospel. Paul was given a mission to the Gentiles, but we too have been given this same mission as Pastor Josh so clearly pointed out for us on Wednesday night and I'm sure this morning. Matthew 28, here's your mission. All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. That's Jesus speaking. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, God has chosen us. He's called us by his grace. And he revealed his son to us. He was pleased. I love that word. He was pleased 
to reveal his son to us. It brought him great joy to reveal his son to us so that we might take up the baton and proclaim his gospel to our neighbors and to the nations. This is our mission. Just as God used the gospel proclamation to bring us to faith, so now we have the privilege to stand in that line and herald the gospel to others who will hear and God will use us to call them to salvation. All the while, knowing and trusting that God is at work. But we get fearful, we get timid, we get unsure when we forget that it's him who's working. We doubt that God would use sinners like us to spread his message, and so we keep our mouths closed. Let me give you one last exhortation and encouragement on that specifically. Now, I don't have time to take you to the scriptures and show you this this morning, but what Paul is doing in this text is he's making a lot of allusions to Isaiah 49, and Isaiah 42. And later in Galatians, he's going to allude a lot to Isaiah 53. Clearly what's going on here is Paul has been meditating and reflecting on Isaiah. Now, these chapters in Isaiah, you'll see how this connects, I promise. These chapters in Isaiah have a main character. You saw it as, as Jeffrey read the, the chapter for us this morning. This character is called the servant of the Lord. Now, we know because the scriptures clearly teach us that Jesus is the servant of the Lord. He is the one who fills those passages. Remember when he goes into the temple, he reads that passage and he sits down, or he says, in your hearing, this has been fulfilled. And then he sits down and everyone's looking around like, what, what is this guy, crazy? He is the servant of the Lord. He is the one who accomplishes the things that Isaiah prophesies. And yet, Paul, by the language he used here, is referring to himself as the servant of the Lord, of Isaiah. Was Paul deluded? Has he gone mad? Does he not know that it's about Jesus? Of course, he knows all of that. What's he doing? What's going on? Paul knows this, and this is, this is the secret to Paul's contentment. This is the secret to Paul's power in evangelism. This is the secret to his Christian life. What does Paul know? That when he was saved, he was united with Christ. He was brought, it's fa Paul's favorite phrase, in Christ, in Christ. Paul knows that he is in Christ. This is what he says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. You know the verse. I have been crucified with Christ. Okay? That doesn't make any... Christ was crucified before Paul was converted. Ah, he's in Christ. He's united with him. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how can Paul use the servant of the Lord language about himself? Because Paul is united to Christ by faith. And it is Jesus Christ who now lives in Paul and through Paul. That's the secret to his evangelism. He knew and believed that Jesus was living in him and working through Paul and all other believers to accomplish his mission. The salvation of the nations, the proclamation of the gospel to the ends of the earth is not, first and foremost, our mission. It is the mission of the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. We saw that in Isaiah. Yet, in his wisdom, and to show forth his power even more, God has said, I don't even need to use Jesus to do it. I'm going to use people like you. 
the foolish things of the world to shame the wisdom of the world. This is what Paul believed. God had given Paul a mission. And through Paul, and and though Paul worked at it with all his effort, ultimately he knew it was God who was doing the work because it's God's mission. The same is true for us. God has given us this task of proclaiming the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it is not ultimately our task. If it was our task, brothers and sisters, sisters and ours alone, we would fail. But it is Jesus Christ's mission. It is his task that he is accomplishing by his power through us. That is why we can share and preach and proclaim the gospel with boldness. Because it is not dependent on us. It does not rely on us or our power. God's salvation will reach the ends of the earth. God's elect will be gathered, not ultimately because of our faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. And that is why Jesus ends the Great Commission the way he does, gives him this mission, and what does he say? Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now that is not for one millisecond an excuse to be passive or lazy in our evangelism. It is the exact opposite. It is what fuels our evangelism. You see, Paul's gospel was not man's gospel. It was the gospel of Jesus Christ, which Paul had received from Jesus Christ. And it is the same gospel that was passed down through the generations, faithful men and women who came before us. It is the same gospel by which God called you by his grace. It is a glorious gospel because it is the story of the victory of our glorious God and Savior, Jesus the Messiah, and his victory over sin, Satan, and death. So in response, let us continue, brothers and sisters. Let us continue to worship him this morning and let us together take our place in the line of faithful men and women as we proclaim the gospel to all of creation. Let's pray.